Hello, and welcome to What Now? Election 2020. I'm Scott Barnes. And I'm Jake Eisendrath. Together with our team of WCRX reporters, we're going to take a look at this unprecedented election. As we tape this show on Tuesday, November 17th, Joe Biden has won more votes than any president, president candidate in history. He's also scored a divisive win in the Electoral College with 306 Electoral College votes to Donald Trump's 232. Biden celebrated his big win in Delaware. I sought this office to restore the soul of America, to rebuild the backbone of this nation, the middle class, and to make America respected around the world again. And to unite us here at home. It's the honor of my lifetime that so many millions of Americans have voted for that vision. And now, the work of making that vision is real. It's a task, the task of our time. Trump isn't so sure that he lost. Whatever happens in the future, who knows which administration it will be. I guess time will tell. We have a new president-elect, Joe Biden. We're going to discuss what Joe Biden has been doing and what his plans are for the first 100 days in office. Our correspondent, Dylan Miller, is here with us to discuss. Dylan? What's been going on with the Biden campaign in the days following the election? Well, according to my research from National Public Radio, Biden wants to get America back on Trump from track from Trump's corruption, and he has policies to help us move ahead. Biden's first policy is focusing on COVID-19, and he has been listening to the doctors and science about it. He wants... He wants Congress to pass coronavirus relief that includes protective equipment and multiple testings. And he wants to release a vaccine distribution plan and make it free for all Americans. And he wants to listen to the science by rejoining who and keeping Dr. Fossey as a close advisor uh, for the vaccination. For the economy, he wants to reverse Trump's corporate tax cuts. And for the environment, Biden will make the U.S. an international leader on climate change, and he will work with other countries. And for racial equality, he will extend the Voting Rights Act. The 1965 legislation has given African Americans the right to vote, but Trump has not made it permanently for them. So Biden will extend it and even make it permanent for all African Americans for them to vote forever. For immigration, Biden wants to allow illegal immigrants from England, Italy, or or even Canada to become U.S. citizens, along with dreamers as well. Although Biden has been sort of pigeonholed as the centrist um, candidate for the Democratic Party, a lot of these initiatives are progressive. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out moving forward, whether he's able to get these things done. As things stand now, there has been no evidence of fraudulent activity. In fact, this election seems to have run smoothly, and some are even calling it a big win for democracy. But despite evidence to the contrary, the Trump administration is claiming that the election was rigged and is refusing to concede. What exactly can Donald Trump do to legally challenge election results? Correspondent Colin Clark joins us now to explain. And Colin, what can he do? 
Well, currently Donald Trump is filing lawsuits in the court. He has about roughly 12 lawsuits the Trump administration has filed thus far since election and about 12 lawsuits being filed by the Republican Party. What states have been targeted by these lawsuits? So far, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Michigan. And um, some of the lawsuits that he's filing, a few of the lawsuits have been claims made by the Trump administration claiming voter fraud, um, that absentee ballots in Michigan were being counted without inspectors from both parties being present, as well as the administration asking the court to block certain states and counties in Michigan from certifying election results because of ineligible ballots were supposedly cast. And what um, what has the court said pertaining to those uh, lawsuits in Michigan? So far, we have um, the they have they've been dismissed. Um, there's also voters that are asking courts to block the state from certifying election results. Cases are being pending currently. There's two cases open by voters and um, the. F- they've been either dismissed or they're currently pending. And what are the, there, there has, there are two uh, lawsuits by the Trump campaign going on in Michigan right now too, correct? There is. Um, And that would be the Trump versus Benson case. mm -hmm. And the, well, they're actually both Trump, Trump versus Benson. Um, Alleged, ineligible ballots were being cast in the general election. Trump campaigns asking the court to block the state and the Wayne County canvassing boards from certifying election results. That's currently pending. And the Trump campaign is, and the Republican election challenger claimed absentee absentee voter counting boards were being conducted without inspectors from each party present. So the New York Times recently contacted election officials in all 50 states, and every one of them said there was no evidence of voter fraud. It seems unlikely that this election will be overturned. Um, can you speak to why Trump might be taking this approach? Um, I believe that he just does not want to um, give up on the presidency. And we've been keeping a close eye on on William Barr throughout all of this, and he has sort of stayed silent during the election, but he did issue a statement saying that, hey, if if these are valid claims, he encouraged the FBI to go ahead and investigate them. Can you talk a little bit about Williams William Barr's position on all this and 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 what he's saying? Yeah, um, William Barr, he told federal federal prosecutors that they should examine allegations of voting irregularities before states move to certify results in the coming weeks. Um, He's been supportive of Trump's claims of voting fraud, and he sent out a memo telling prosecutors that they could take investigative steps such as interviewing witnesses um, during the period that usually they wouldn't they would need permission from the election crime section. Well, thanks, Colin. Now we're going to turn to Lauren Lesenby to talk about where all this leaves Trump, his brand, his supporters. Lauren, since there's little chance this election result will be overturned, some of the media have said Trump's efforts are all about, you know, raising funds for himself in his next venture, 
What can you tell us about that? And more generally, what can you tell us about what's next for Trump, the Trump clan and the Trump brand as a whole? Yeah, so to start with your your first point about fundraising, I think you're probably referring to um, those uh, campaign defense fund uh, emails that were sent out. Um, and so, so Trump has been fundraising. I think the the name of that campaign defense fund is a little bit misleading. Um, the fine print of that is that that most of that money goes to pay off um, Trump's campaign debt as well as to finance the Save America PAC. Um, and only after uh, a donor reaches a certain um, threshold of donations, then does that money go to um, actually, you know, toward the, the free counts. So Trump has been contesting the election and, you know, he's been saying that this is rigged and this and that. Um, how has the Republican Party taken that? Is, is he getting support from Republicans or, or are they coming out and, and sort of pushing back against that idea? Well, I think you can look at, um, you know, I think it speaks to Trump's influence um, in the in the party, and you know, he is the president, current president of the United States, is a Republican, and you know, is the, the highest Republican in in the land, um, and so I think the whole party kind of looks to him as a source of of leadership, um, in terms of ideology, in terms of rhetoric, in terms of where the party is going, and so I think. Um, you know, with, with that in mind, that a lot of uh, Republicans are kind of holding to, um, you know, especially some of the, the larger players are holding to what Trump has to say about um, the election. So even if Trump is no longer the president, is Trumpism still a part of the Republican Party? Will it be moving forward? You know, I think Trumpism is, is um, it's, a, it's a political ideology at this point. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's um, you know, right-wing conservative, a little bit nationalistic kind of thing. And, and that's not going away anytime soon. It didn't begin with Donald Trump. It's, you know, not going to go away with his, his, uh, the end of his presidency. I think you can look to people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the noted uh, QAnon supporter that just won a House seat uh, in Georgia. And, you know, that, that's a state that, that voted for Biden this time around, but she, you know, won in the state and, you know, kind of ran on this Trumpism platform and his fervent support for the president. And so, you know, I think, uh, you know, although the rhetoric didn't necessarily work for Trump this time in the election, it is working for, you know, Republicans across the country and is probably going to continue um, as Trump supporters are still out there. You know, they made up almost half of of all uh, voters. And so there are people that do support the president. There is love for the president in this country. And, um, you know, I think that's going to continue as time goes on. Some so, say yeah. Trump is continuing, um, considering running for president again in 2024, and he, or he's considering to um, create a media company. Uh, which one of those do you think is more likely or if any really is likely to happen. So Trump has expressed interest in running in 2024, although that announcement wouldn't likely come till after he's conceded the election, which we all know has not happened yet. Um, so, you know, that would have a really interesting impact on the Republican Party going forward in that, you know, no other Republicans would really want to break ranks and, you know, start fundraising or, or campaigning or anything. So um, if, you know, we're kind of waiting to see what happens with the, um, 
the with this election before we talk about the next one and whether he'll be running again still waiting on a you know official kind of announcement for that um but then as far as uh the um trump media company or uh, <laughs> channel or things that have been kind of floated around um there have been you know murmurings of something like a trump tv um an unnamed source apparently close to the president suggested that he's pushing for like a streaming service um, not necessarily like a cable channel but like a you know a, a netflix kind of thing um that would essentially rival fox news but there's no not been a formal announcement about that either um there has been some kind of speculation that some trump allies have poured money into um newsmax tv which is an ultra conservative news outlet another thing that um, rivals fox news um uh, it's also called the One America News Network. But again, there's not really been any sort of uh, announcement on that either way of whether that's going to become Trump TV or, or anything like that. So what like, about um, Mike Pence? Where does he come out of all of this? Is he is he popular with Trump supporters? Is he somebody that we could see running for president in the future, maybe instead of Trump in 2024? Is he a figure that they like or is it just solely Trump? I think what's interesting is that Pence has uh, largely remained out of the public eye uh, for the most part since the election, hasn't really been making any waves um, here or there. Um, and kind of like um, Trump's children, he Trump is, or sorry, Pence is, is really tied to Trump in that his career is tied to Trump. Um, will he run in 2024? Maybe. I think it's too soon to tell um, because I think at the moment, the big thing is that um, you know, they're still trying to um, the still, still trying to, um, you know, go through all these court cases and and talking about um, voter fraud and things like this to make sure the you know, that didn't happen in this election. And, you know, making sure that uh, Biden won the election, Trump lost the election, things like that. So um, I think we would know more um, as soon as we see a Trump concession, if that is to happen on whether Pence will kind of follow suit. But at the moment, I think he's he's in the position where he agrees with Trump's policies, but he doesn't really have that um, you know level of personality. And I think there are a lot of people, um, a lot of Republicans in this country that are, are looking for something like that as well. Um, you know, support the policies, but would like to see um, maybe a little bit more buttoned up kind of kind of president. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because, as you said, you know, many Americans voted for Trump. And, and you know, obviously, there's a huge divide in the country. Thank you for, for getting us up to speed with that. I appreciate it. We are now going to head to a break. But on the other side of this break, we will talk about how this election shaped Congress and, and how things are shaking up there. And also, we will discuss the role the Supreme Court will play in shaping Americans' future. You're listening to What Now? Election 2020. I'm Jake Jeff, along with Scott Barnes, and this is WCRX 88.1 FM at Columbia College, Chicago. We're back with another segment of What Now? Election 2020. Joining the conversation now is WCRX election reporter Emma McNamee. Emma, there are two runoff elections in Georgia that could impact the control of the U.S. Senate. Um, can you give us an overview of what's going on there? Yeah, of course. So as per Georgia law, local election candidates need to net 50% of the vote in order to be considered the winner, which just was not the case for either of the Senate races that took place on November 3rd. As a result, both Senate races will be 
um, sent to a further runoff election that will take place on January 5th this coming year. Uh, now, Jordan, now, Georgia was the only state in this election to have two Senate races due to the resignation of Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson because of health issues in 2019. Kelly Loeffler was appointed to his seat, and after obtaining 25.9% of the vote on November 3rd, Loeffler will be facing Democratic challenger Raphael Warnock, who was the front runner in that special election race. He had almost 33% of the vote. Um, the other Georgia race was a lot closer with Republican incumbent David Perdue taking just under a two-point lead over challenger John Ossoff. So if the Democrats win both seats, the Senate will then be 50-50. So what does that mean for the role of Vice President-elect Harris and, and the incoming as the incoming Senate president? Uh, well, in the case that there's that 50-50 split, um, Kamala Harris will play a role as kind of a tiebreaker vote. Um, of course, that will depend on party lines as well. I mean, if you have any one person, any one senator breaking from their party in order to vote across the aisle, that won't necessarily always come up as an issue. You won't always need Harris as that tiebreaker if that happens. But it really kind of depends on what the senators are doing and whether or not they're sticking with those party lines, which in a divisive political climate like this could happen. And are we seeing... Are we seeing people come out? So this runoff election is, is you know, obviously they need to campaign and voters are going to go and vote again. So what are we seeing play out on both sides? Are people coming out in support of these candidates? How, how are current politicians using this to their advantage? Well, you know, it was recently announced that um, by Ron Klain, who is Biden's chief of staff, that Biden will be going out to Georgia in order to campaign for um, both Ossoff and Warnock. Um, kind of help boost. But on the other side, you have Pence, who recently, I think as soon as Friday, he's planning on going down to Georgia in order to help with those campaigns on the other side. And that's for Loeffler and Purdue. So you have both um, Republicans and Democrats sending out heavy hitters because, I mean, a lot hinges on this race. So they're they're showing their support on both sides. They're coming out. So thank you, Emma. So if the GOP wins both seats, then it retains a slim majority. What does that mean for Biden's efforts moving forward? Um, you know, should the Republicans hold on to the Senate majority, which they have had in the past, um, Biden's going to be in for a fight, um, you know, which is something that we saw when Obama was president and he lost the Senate. I think that having that Democratic presidency versus the Republican um, Senate, it's always a bit contentious. It's hard to get policy passed. Um, but Biden's going to have his work cut out for him if that's the case. Thank you, Emma. Although Democrats do still hold the majority in the House, Republicans see this election as a success for them. Predictions based on polling numbers for the presidential race were skewed, but they seem pretty accurate when it comes to the House and the Senate races. To help us understand what is going on with the House, we now bring in correspondent Eddie Weisfield. Eddie, it seems to have been more difficult than Democrats thought to increase their majority in the House. In fact, Republicans cut into that majority quite a bit. What's the current margin between House Democrats and the GOP? 
Yeah, right now, the New York Times has it that the Democrats have hit the majority number, 218 seats in the House to retain their majority control. But there's still 13 seats remaining uh, that could go either way. So that lead could go up a little bit, could go down as well uh, in favor of the GOP in the House. So once votes are tabulated, are we going to see a big difference? Um, Does it seem like the Democrats are... Uh, you know, um, running the risk of, of losing the majority in the House. What's interesting is kind of the turmoil that the Democratic Party inside the House is going through right now. After the election, uh, there was a lot of finger pointing uh, between moderate representatives and more progressive or leftist or left-leaning representatives inside the House. There was uh, calls that went on that were uh, found by the Wall Street Journal uh, where um, excuse me one second here, Uh, Abigail uh, Spanberger from Virginia went on to say that some rhetoric that has been used throughout the Democratic Party, uh, things like uh, the Green New Deal or defund the police, rhetoric like this that has been being used uh, negatively affect a lot of moderate uh, representatives that were running in swing vote districts. So uh, they're saying that they need to take less of a progressive stance uh, because it's negatively affecting their chances of reelection within their swing vote districts. On the other hand, uh, the progressives are saying that the moderates need to embrace the progressive rhetoric a little more and to enact some laws that they can bring back to their constituents uh, to show exactly what they've been doing in order to get reelected, as well as bring some more modern approaches to campaigning, uh, putting a little more money into uh, online campaign approaches instead of just mailing out some stuff uh, to constituents within their district. So some of the more leftist candidates in the House or Congress people in the House um, have been saying that Nancy Pelosi um, should be replaced as Speaker of the House. Does she have any competitors at the moment when she runs again? At the moment, the answer to that would be no. There was some talk from moderate representatives to have Nancy Pelosi replaced in January. Uh, Their candidate that they would uh, want to replace her would be Hakeem Jeffries, who is the head of the Democratic caucus. A spokeswoman, though, uh, spoke out for him and said that he is not planning on running or uh, the Speaker of the House, he plans to run for re-election as House uh, uh, or as the representative of the Democratic Caucus in January. All right, thank you so much, Eddie. And now we're going to talk to Zach Cunning about the U.S. Supreme Court. As we know, a new justice was seated right before the election. Amy Coney Barrett from South Bend, Indiana, filled the seat of the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Zach, has Barrett had any impact on the court yet? Hi, Jake. Good to be here. Uh, Barrett has really not been able to have an impact yet. She has sat in on arguments for a few cases, but the only two cases that have been decided since she uh, came to the court, both on November 2nd, it was Taylor v. Rojas, or Riojas and uh, Mekison v. Doe, were both per curiam opinions, and she had recused herself so that she could take time to come up to speed on the, uh, the goings-on of the court. So the Supreme Court revisited the Affordable Care Act this past week. Can you get us up to speed with what happened there? Absolutely. So the Affordable Care Act is in front of the Supreme Court because Republicans in Congress uh, felt 
that they well excuse me let me back up is that of course republicans in congress have been trying to repeal the affordable care act and they were successful in eliminating the individual mandate which put a penalty on people who chose to go without health care the certain states being led by texas as a coalition of republican states have now sued saying that without the individual mandate the entire law should be defunct so california is then leading the opposition side as a coalition of Democrat-led states, as well as the Democrat majority House of Representatives in saying that's not the case. Without the individual mandate, we still have a law and the law should stand. As far as current goings on, or as uh, the current status of that, I said that's in front of the court. John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh both seem to have indicated that they hold the opinion that even without the individual mandate, the law stands, the law should still stay. And if Congress wanted to get rid of the entire law, they should have done it. So turning now to the impact on the high court and Trump's view that he wants to send the final vote on the election to the Supreme Court. He has been talking about that for some time now, even leading up to the election. Um, the Supreme Court did not take up the Pennsylvania absentee ballot case. First of all, can you explain anything about that? And if you think that Trump will get his wish and the Supreme Court will actually decide this election? Sure. So here's the thing with that, Jake. There's effectively three ways that the court can take on a case. Uh, they can take it on through what's called original jurisdiction, which is the absolute jurisdiction that only the Supreme Court has in the Constitution. And that's normally limited to interstate disputes, um, Texas versus California being an excellent example. Two states in a state dispute. There's no other court that that can go through. Then you have an appeal from a circuit court. And this is the most common way where it's a case that has gone to a federal court. It's a district court uh, that one party obviously has to lose in a decision. They appeal that. Eventually, they appeal it through, I believe it's three courts, and it will hit the Supreme Court, and they can choose whether or not to take it. The third way is a state Supreme Court decides something. It's appealed. It can then be appealed from the state court by the state Supreme Court to the U.S. Supreme Court. The only way for Trump or the GOP to get this election decided by the U.S. Supreme Court is to start in a lower court. And every lower court has dismissed those cases so far. So that's where things stand now. We will definitely keep an eye on these things moving forward. We are taping this on November 17th. And, you know, by the time this airs, things may have changed. Thank you, Zach, for that reporting. We are now going to head to a break. But on the other side of the break, we are going to get into Trump and and Twitter and um, new social media platforms, legalized drug use, and the results of the local elections here in Illinois. You are listening to What Now here on WCRX. I'm Scott Barnes here with Jake Eisendrath, and we will be back. Jake Eisendorf, here with my co-host Scott Barnes, and you're listening to WCRX What Now? Election 2020 on WCRX Radio, Columbia College, Chicago. Trump has been notorious for his presence on Twitter. 
to discuss the role social media plays in politics and election, we're now going to bring Lauren Leesonby back in and talk a little bit about this new social media outlet. What is the name of this new social media outlet, Lauren? Yeah, so it's called Parlor. Um, it's kind of branded as an alternative uh, social network service. Um, kind of in response to uh, crackdowns on political misinformation on Twitter and Facebook. Um, there's this new platform, Parler, that is supposed to be the free speech platform. So you're supposed to be able to use it to say, you know, whatever you want. So you don't have a fear of being deplatformed by a company like Facebook or, or Twitter. And the whole reason, you know, Facebook has been sort of flagging disinformation posts as well as Twitter. So is this sort of seen as a way where people can go and, and maybe, for a lack of better term, spread conspiracy theories? Well, it's definitely going, it's it's used, I should say, it's used a lot by um, um some right-wing conservatives, some Trump supporters have kind of flocked to this platform as a way to exercise the First Amendment right they, um, of free speech. So they they want to have a platform where they can kind of um, be free to speak about what it is they want to speak about. And that might be, um, you know, simple things they might be, um, that might be flagged on on Twitter as, as misinformation right. or different things all the way down to, um, you know, conspiracy theories or, or QAnon or, or things like that. So I think there's probably more a broader spectrum of things that this platform will be used for than just um, conspiracy theories, but yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of people in the media industry, well, and politicians have been kind of coming out supporting this. Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, Laura Loomer, even Ted Cruz and Congressman uh, Devin Nunes have encouraged their audience to sort of jump ship from Twitter to parlor. Do you know, um, I know it's kind of on the spot, but have you, have they seen um, numbers increase, membership numbers increase over there at parlor? Yeah. Last I looked, it was about, um, I think about, th about 3 million people so far have kind of, um, I wouldn't say necessarily jumped ship, but um, have, you know, migrated over to um, parlor to start to use that platform. Um, like I said, a lot of those are, are, right-wing conservatives, um, Trump supporters, but also just people who want to talk about what they want to talk about. Do you see Trump using Parler moving forward? Do you, are we going to be seeing some Trump, some Trump posts on Parler? I am not sure. I'm assuming if, if the, if the audience um, is there, uh, that might be a, a platform that he might choose to use. Um, but I probably will have to wait and see for that, the audience to build up on Parler first. All right. Thank you, Lauren, for bringing us up to speed with that. We're so, now going to turn to some big issues on the ba ballot that we had this time around. And here to talk about the details on those are Dylan Case. Dylan, yes. what stood out to you as you look at all the ballot measures voters considered in 2020, and specifically the ones related to drugs? What stood out to you? Well, so far, marijuana has seen the light of legality in states such as Montana, New Jersey, Arizona, and South Dakota. And that's stretching from the top of the country all the way down to the Mexican border. We've seen new laws uh, for recreational use and trying to get more for medicinal use. Um, Oregon has taken this a step further, and the Oregon measure has been passed that makes the possession of hard substances in small quantities um, 
they will be given a less strict violation, similar to that of a traffic ticket. So across the country, marijuana has been legalized. Can you talk a little bit about that? What states, what states did legalize recreational marijuana? Well, there's plenty of states that have uh, legalized recreational marijuana. And while I don't have the exact numbers right now, I know that many have. And there's only about six different uh, states that have not legalized marijuana at all. And in fact, we're seeing more and more every day uh, go towards recreational use. And they've become more progressive in that regard. So in addition to legalizing drugs, there was one other ballot measure that is that is notable that is worth talking about, and that's Prop 22 in California. Can you can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Prop 22 was the ballot that um, voted upon uh, all drivers becoming full employees so that they would receive benefits such as insurance and such as a minimum wage. And some people were in favor of this and felt that it would allow for drivers to make more but it ended up not getting passed. And just to be clear, this is for Uber and Lyft drivers, rideshare drivers who are currently um, not employees. They're independent contractors. And the proposition itself would have made them employees, but this, the public voted on it in the state of California and they would rather not have them as employees. And I know that there was a lot going on there. There was a, a big information campaign on behalf of Uber and Lyft to, you know, to approve this and say, hey, we don't, we want them to remain contractors. And moving forward, I know that um, other states are going to kind of look at this. Um, and, and, you know, I know that Chicago itself was a lot of drivers here were um, were kind of coming at Uber and saying, hey, you know, we should be employees. But it looks like moving forward, Uber is going to have their way with this. Thank you, Dylan. I appreciate your reporting. And we are now going to turn to other things related to Illinois. And we're going to bring in our local correspondent, Mariana Coons. Mariana, you've been paying attention to some important elections here in Illinois. What are those elections? Yes, so the elections that I've been paying attention to um, in Illinois are specifically the Lauren Underwood, uh, Jim Oberweiss uh, race, the uh, Sean Caston, uh, Jeannie Ives um, race, uh, as well as the Kim Fox, Pat O'Brien race. Can you tell us, Mariana, hi, it's Jake. Um, can you tell us um, what, uh, where those races stand and if there are winners, who has won those races? Of course. So as for the Underwood Oberweiss race, um, after all the votes have been counted, uh, Underwood secured 50.6% um, of the votes. Um, so Oberweiss was not too far behind that. Oberweiss had 49.4% of the votes. So Underwood did come out uh, victorious in that regard. Um, so... Um, Oberweiss, or actually, uh, today's the last day that the state of Illinois can count mail-in ballots that were postmarked by November 3rd. Um, Oberweiss' spokesman uh, was saying that he is going to wait for the election to be certified on November 24th. So at that point, we, will, we the people will know if um, Oberweiss will request a recount. Um, so Oberweiss is not conceding. And he actually, in, interestingly enough, he attended an orientation for the new House members um, uh, on Thursday and Friday. Um, so he attended that. And um, 
Yeah, Underwood, um, with her success, with her victory, her success, she plans on working toward protecting our families, ensuring a robust economic recovery, and lowering the cost of healthcare. Um, now, as far as the Sean Caston, uh, Jeannie Ives race, Caston uh, did come out victorious um, in that with 52.8% of the vote. Um, climate change, as well as um, COVID relief, healthcare and job creation are some of the key issues that Caston uh, will focus on. And lastly, the last race I wanted to briefly touch on was um, the Kim Fox race. Of course, she did win a second term to her Republican challenger, Pat O'Brien. Um, and she, during her victory speech, she actually talked about uh, how she wants to call for a united effort to fight crime. Um, and she said that, you know, she will do that, whether that means continuing, or she said that a second term means continuing the right or the work on righting the wrongs of the past. Uh, and whether that's wrongful convictions or vacating the convictions of crimes that are no longer crimes, that, that will happen. So. All right. Thank you, Mariana. Violence is one thing that we've been dealing with here in Chicago. And now we are dealing with the pandemic, of course. Everybody across the nation is dealing with the pandemic and a lot of lockdown measures are going into place and Biden's trying to deal with it in the most effective way he can. But he's sort of being handcuffed right now to get a better understanding of what's going on with the pandemic. We now bring in correspondent Ryan Rosenberger. Ryan, what what is going on with the pandemic? What um, what is Biden trying to do? What 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 are the current numbers? What what, what are we looking at? So, Scott, obviously, there's been um, kind of a lack of a formal transition process um, between Trump and Biden, um, which has greatly affected Biden's ability to um, kind of put things in place before he begins on day one. So for a formal transition process to actually happen, um, the head of the General Services Administration has to sign off on the election results. In this case, that is uh, Emily Murphy, who was appointed directly by Trump to fill that position. She so far has refused to sign off. Um, and experts are warning that lack of a formal transition could very much delay how Biden responds. So um, the limits on transition cooperation could also prevent Biden's team from having access to research and uh, capabilities for distributing a vaccine. Um, they would also not be able to prepare for a vaccine distribution or meet with government officials, which includes uh, Dr. Fauci before January 20th. Um, you know, Murphy not signing off in the election results has also prevented Biden's uh, coronavi coronavirus advisory board from being able to contact um, <clears throat> members of the Department of Health and Human Services. And yeah, that's really where things are standing right now. Mm. Brian, it's Jake here. What do we know about um, Biden's COVID um, team? He has a, announced and assembled a team. Do we know, do we have any information on that? Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, a lot of people have been wondering, will, will President or President-elect Biden keep anyone from Trump's uh, coronavirus task force? From what I've gathered, um, Biden's newly announced task force has a 13-member cabinet, which includes former FDA commissioner David Kessler and former Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murphy, um, who will run the coronavirus advisory board. Um, his transition officials are also working through informal channels to learn what they can about the virus, um, including talking with think tanks, labor, uh, labor and nonprofit groups, as well as past government officials as well. So... 
Last week, Pfizer came out and said that they have a vaccine ready to go. It performed well in clinical trials, 90% effective. And then just today, we had um, Moderna come out, or yesterday, I'm sorry, Moderna come out and say that they have a vaccine as well. It's got a 95% effective rate. Can we talk a little bit about the logistics of um Rolling out the vaccine, Dr. Fauci said that it would be widely available to Americans before the end of the year, but it seems like it's going to take much longer than that for everybody to actually get vaccinated. Yeah. So um, as you said, Pfizer and Moderna, um, both vaccines have had very encouraging results uh, in the trial so far. Um, they're cur- both are currently gathering the two months worth of safety data needed for emergency repro- approval from the FDA. Um, Pfizer previously said it expects their safety data in the third week of November, while Moderna is expecting to file uh, for FDA approval within a few weeks. Um, Both candidates involve two doses for the injection, um, several weeks apart. Pfizer's 21 days, while Moderna is 28. Um, So for the vaccine to become accessible to the general public, there are a lot of hurdles that still need to be crossed. Uh, both companies will need to apply for authorization from the FDA, for example. Half of trial participants will need to be two months past their first shot. Um, so while Fauci said, uh, you know, there, there will be distribution before the end of the year, um, according to the CDC website, a vaccine will not be widely available to the general public until the summer or the fall of 2021. All right. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate that. We are now going to head to a break. And on the other side of the break, we are going to open up the discussion. We're going to just sort of hand it around and, and, and uh, talk about where we are at as, um, as a country and, and what to do moving forward. You are listening to What Now? Election 2020 here on WCRX 88.1 FM. I'm Scott Barnes here with Jake Eisendrath. And we will be back after this short break. Welcome back to What Now? Election 2020. I'm Jake Eisenberg here with Scott Barnes. And now, to wrap up this great show that we've had here with you guys, we're going to leave with an open discussion of what is to come, what is next, what we will see from Trump, what we will see from Biden. We're just going to have an open discussion with our reporters here about what they think is the most important thing to leave you with and what their views are on what's next and what we should be paying attention to. So to start off this discussion, we're going to talk to Dylan Miller. We're going to ask him what he thinks is next with Joe Biden. Just what will he and Kamala be up to in these next coming weeks and what should we be focusing on? Well, I'm going to state some breaking news. Um, so um, for that, uh, this is a breaking news. We announced our Cedric uh, Richmond, uh, a Louisiana congressman, and he will serve as uh, the leader of the White House Office of Public Engagement. And then there's Jen O'Malley D- uh, Dillon. He, she's uh, Biden's campaign manager since March, and she will serve as deputy chief of uh, staff under Ron Klain. And also, also there's 
Um, Steve uh, Richardy, um, he's been Biden's side since 2012, and he will serve as chief of staff to Biden as vice president, um, who uh, will serve as a senior counselor. And then there's Mike Dillian. Um, he is he will uh, serve. Uh, um, he will be a senior advisor uh, to uh, Biden. And I gotta say, there's uh, all of there's a lot uh, from this diverse list. All right, thank you, Dylan. We appreciate it. We are now going to turn to Lauren. What are your final thoughts, Lauren? I think um, the next few weeks are going to be really, really interesting in seeing how um, the, especially the Republican Party, um, kind of, uh, you know, either stays, you know, gets behind Trump um, going forward or kind of breaks from from him, you know, as these kind of court cases play out and as we see, um, you know, everything play out. So I think that's going to be, to me, the really interesting thing to watch going forward. Right, right. And how about you, Zach Cunning? What are you looking at moving forward? You know, the biggest thing I'm actually looking at is not only ACA, but also uh, the gun control going oh, forward. Oh, for sure. Clarence Thomas has been saying for years he doesn't think the Second Amendment gets enough playing time. We've got <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh, who went back in June, they were talking about the New York gun laws. Kavanaugh, after they dismissed that case, it became moot, was saying, I want to hear another Second Amendment case. We're going to see sure. gun laws. We've got a Democrat who has said he wants to you know, start increasing some stricter measures for firearm ownership in the White House. We've got a very progressive, which usually means much higher gun restrictions, House. We may or may not have a narrow majority of Democrats in the Senate, and we have a Supreme Court that really wants to open up gun restrictions. So I think okay. that fight is going to be one for the ages. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the Republicans and Democrats sort of adjust their campaigns moving forward, because it seems like mm. everything is just changing right now, you know? Well, and it did seem like towards the beginning of this uh, presidential campaign that we heard so much about gun legislation, especially from candidates like um, Beto O'Rourke and, um, and Pete Buttigieg. But um, as the, pan the pandemic has basically engulfed everyone in the pandemic and the and the economy has basically engulfed everyone and to um touch on that with the economy um i want to bring in um mariana um you mentioned in the all the stuff about um local elections but um one thing um we didn't hear from you was the about the fair tax can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, I just wanted to say that business owners and job creators are pretty satisfied right now because they, along with the majority of Illinois, uh, have voted against the graduated uh, income uh, tax, you know, the change from flat to graduated. Um, and the, like that, that's the exact reason why it didn't get passed, because um, the majority of Illinois was not satisfied with that. So we will. The thing is, Mariana, with that, Pritzker's now saying that other taxes are going to have to go up to compensate. Right. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that too. Do you yeah. think, do you think, um, and anybody can answer this if they'd like, um, do you think that uh, it wasn't passed because they called it a tax and because Illinois is notoriously you, you, known for you, not liking taxes? 
You know what? A good, oh, I'm going to make this brief, but I, I think that it wasn't passed because a good reason why it might not have been passed is because it really was not clear on the ballot. You have to really think of it wasn't it wasn't it was not apparent on the ballot when you it was the first thing that popped up on the ballot. But you really had to read through that small print and really read what it was. And also some people were not educated on what that exactly meant. OK, so that th- those are two big reasons why that may not have been passed. And and third reason, quite frankly, Illinois just didn't want it. So. Great, great points, Mariana. Thank you. Now we are going to turn to Emma McNamee. What are your final thoughts, Emma? Honestly, I am still, I'm really looking forward to this race in Georgia, seeing how that, or both these races in Georgia and seeing how they'll play out. Because they do have, I mean, they're going to have an impact on the way the Senate is formed, no matter what the results are. They're going to have an impact. It's just going to happen. Do we have, Emma, this is Jake again, do we have any dates on when the, um, Georgia election is happening? Also, January 5th is the um, the actual election date, but I think it is um, December 14th, early voting starts. Um, you can put in to have your um, a ballot sent to you as early as November 18th. Um, December 7th, voter registration um, deadline is right there. So those are all dates that you want to keep in mind. Also, you know, for people who couldn't vote in this election but are going to be 18, by January 5th, they can register to vote in this runoff or both these runoffs. So that is something that people in Georgia should keep in mind. And definitely. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say we got the midterms coming up too. So, right. So we will definitely be um, looking at that, uh, keeping a close eye on that Georgia race. And now, um, Eddie, we wanted to talk to you real quick about um, where you think. Um, things stand um do you think we'll hear um do you think things will stay the same with these races when they're called or do you think there's a chance that any of these races will will change i know we are having some technical difficulties with eddie right now so we are going to go back to him in a minute in a minute um in a minute. why don't we jump over to ryan what are your final thoughts ryan Scott, I think the thing I'll be watching most is how much longer can Trump keep not working with Biden and keep kind of, you know, stalemating Biden's transition into office. Um, You know, if he decides to work with Biden, most experts agree that it would save lives. You know, we have a thousand people a day dying right now. Um, COVID's at its worst point. So I think, you know, experts are saying it'll make a major difference um, in the end result, whether Trump will work with Biden or not. Right, and right. I think that's a and I think that's a great place um, to leave it here, Scott. If you agree, oh, just to mention that we know things are. Um, this has been a crazy ride with this election, and that things are um, tough out there right now. As we are, as we here in city of Chicago and state of Illinois are going back into another lockdown, and we just want to make sure that you guys are keeping up to date on the current. Um, restrictions, the current data and making the safest decisions for your life and staying well informed. I agree, Jake. Um, Before we go, though, I want to try to go to Eddie one more time. Eddie, is your connection more stable now? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. What are your final thoughts? I just wanted to say that I will be looking forward to uh, how the Democratic Party inside the House uh, deals with their turmoil, if they'll be able to come to a compromise before the upcoming uh, uh, election cycle. 
All right. Quick, quick and succinct. I like that. Quick and succinct. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for coming, getting back to us, Eddie. Um, but yeah, Scott, any, any final things you'd like to say regard, regarding what I had mentioned? Just, just everyone keeping up to date on what's going on. And it was, I loved doing this with you, Scott. I had uh, fun. Oh yeah. Same Jake. I'm, I'm, I've been, I've been happy to, to work with you on this and, and we put a lot of time and effort into this. One thing I just want to say, and it, it's just Biden is really preaching unity. And I really want to see how unified the country feels by time he does take office. And he's known for working across the aisle and I'm hoping that he can sort of just change the tone of American culture. I feel you. I feel you. Well, this has been fun um, for WCRX election coverage and the What Now Election 2020. I'm Jake Eisendraft. And I'm Scott Barnes. Thank you all for tuning in.